Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Stretch your legs. Good morning. One of the nice things about sitting in the morning is you get to wake up a few times. And I think that this weather is so conducive to this kind of practice. If anybody spent some time outside last night or this morning, sometimes when there's a lot of snow, it's so still. In the city. So I'd like to just speak for a few minutes, and I'm going to start with a little passage from the ecologist and uh, poet philosopher Wendell Berry. Once we have reached the desired end, we think. We will turn back to purify and consecrate the means. Once the war that we're fighting for peace is won, then the generals will become saints, the burned children will proclaim in the heaven that their suffering is well repaid, the poisoned forests will turn green again. Once we have peace, we say, or abundance, or justice, or truth, or comfort, everything will be right. Well, it's an old dream. It's a vicious illusion. For the discipline of ends is no discipline at all. The end is preserved in the means. A desirable end may forever perish in the wrong means. Hope lives in the means, not in the end. Art does not survive in its revelations or agriculture in its products, or craftsmanship in its artifacts, 
or civilization in its monuments or faith in its relics. I've read this passage about 20 times to myself this week. Um, I think it has a lot to say about our practice. When we sit, sometimes we end up in this, what I was calling materialist attitude, where we're sitting and it's going to lead to an end. And then finally, the body will not have gas anymore. My headache will go away. Enlightenment will show up. And there's a kind of struggle because we're superimposing on what's happening. This notion that it's going to get us something or it's going to get us somewhere. There's a wonderful story about Ed Brown, Zen teacher, asking his teacher, Shinru Suzuki, what is the point of this practice? This is usually the question that happens in a long retreat about halfway through. What is the point? And then he rephrases the question, okay, what's the most important point? What's the most important point? And Shinru Suzuki replied, the most important point is to figure out what's the most important point. In other words, faith is useless when it's a relic, like a great musical instrument that's left in a museum that nobody gets to play, or a philosophical tradition that is treated as holy or sacred without anybody actually practicing. And this is what we're doing together. We're going into this body that is stagnating and caught in certain habits, even just purely physiological habits, like not being able to sit still. And we're waking up the inherent intelligence of the mind via attention to the body. And we say something so simple, like pay attention to the breath. And after a few minutes of sitting, the mind is like looking all over the place. Well, what is this leading to? What is this going to get me? How can I commodify this in some way? Me, 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 me. So what I want to focus on now is just refining what we've already covered, which is that when you bring attention to the feeling of breathing or the experience of sensations arising in the body, the kind of attention you bring to what you're noticing actually transfigures what you're noticing. And it changes the object of your attention from something that is seemingly permanent to something that becomes more of a process. You see, you can't have 
a subject without an object. And you can't have an object without a subject. So when a sensation arises in awareness, as soon as you contract around it and make it into a thing by labeling it and creating ideas around it, you've turned it into an object. And as soon as you've turned something into an object, then you become a subject. It, you are in relation to that object. And then there's separation, and then there's dukkha. And this happens so fast. One of the hardest pieces of meditation practice for people who are clinicians is to notice something without focusing on the content of what you're noticing. So a sensation arises in awareness and we don't pay attention to the content. So an example of paying attention to the content would be um, there's pain in the chest. What's the meaning of it? And then we go for the meaning. And going for the meaning is a habitual superimposition on what's actually arising. We've decided what it is, and we've assumed that if something's arising in awareness, it has meaning. Why are we assuming it has meaning? Well, it's part of our training, is that something arises out of the unconscious as if there is actually an unconscious, like it's some cupboard somewhere. There's no unconscious. There's unconsciousness. But there is no place the unconscious. It's interesting in Sanskrit, there's no word the. You can't turn anything into something so prominent in a sentence. There's, there's always process. There's unconsciousness. But there isn't some dark chamber called the unconscious, some big compost heap. (laughs) So is it possible, as sensations start to arise, to just notice arising and passing away? So that when something arises in awareness, Instead of focusing on the content, we focus on the process of impermanence. The process of arising and passing away. And this is totally determined by your intention. If your intention is to find meaning, you're going to find meaning. Or you're not going to find meaning. Dogen has a wonderful passage where he talks about a student going to his teacher 
and the teacher says to the student, what are you up to? And the student says, wandering around aimlessly. And you think it should just end there, right? Wandering around aimlessly. Nobody to be, nowhere to go, and so on. And the teacher says, wandering around aimlessly, that is the most intimate. And the student responds by saying, knowing is the most intimate, and not knowing is the most intimate. And then Dogen says, if I was there, I would have said to the student, with what are you most intimate? With what are you most intimate? So these stories are designed for you to embody. With what are you most intimate? And I would hesitate to say, though I'll say it, that what we're most intimate with is wanting to know wanting a framework. And the framework can actually numb us to the reality of what is arising, to the nature of how things actually are. And that's why yesterday I started with that passage about great bewilderment related to great awakening. Because too often... We're looking at everything, needing to put it into a context. And in a way, you could say that this is how the mind functions. That we have something that we experience, and immediately we want to put it into a context so we can say, oh, that's what it is. Is that the same as name and form? Same as name and form. Oh, that's what that is. You meet somebody, and immediately you put them into a context. Oh, that's who she is. Oh, they're from that school. And then the mind continues. They don't know what they're doing. That's not really practice. (laughs) So is it possible to not know not knowing, allowing the great bewilderment to occur. And the way to do this in the meditation practice is to focus on the process of what's happening in the mind and body. Because otherwise, when sensations arise, you're going to contract around them and try and know about them. And then you actually fix them. And then they don't pass away. And then you're not in relationship to the process. You're in relationship to your idea about what's happening. And then there's some distance. And that's not mindfulness. So we're going to give a working definition of mindfulness. Which is that mindfulness is... The intention to be present 
So it's not just floating around, but having a clear intention to be present with acceptance. Or you could say without judgment. The clear intention to be present without judgment. Whatever is arising and passing away in awareness, that's what we're noticing. Or, as Wendell Berry says, the ends does not consecrate the means. And so it's really interesting in the sitting practice to notice how as soon as some of your favorite well-known sensations arise, you all have your own favorite little anxieties and big anxieties and psychological and physiological grooves. And when certain patterns materialize, Immediately, we try and recognize the pattern, and then we give it a name, and then we decide about it, and then the whole process of elaboration begins, and then next thing you know, we're just in our theory about what's happening, or maybe about something completely different, and what's actually arising has passed away. And in clinical work, this is challenging sometimes because the nature of the relationship is that the therapist wants to feel like they're doing something. I mean, you're being paid. (laughs) And also because of the nature of the form, the person who's coming to see you wants you to do something them. And at an unconscious level, the two of you both fall for it. And then it feels like you should be doing something. And unfortunately, so much doing sometimes stays at a fairly superficial level. In my practice, because of what I do, a lot of people come to me who've had way too much therapy. They can talk about their experience from a Jungian perspective and a feminist perspective and a Freudian perspective. And and then they say, but I'm still repeating all of the same anxieties. But I, I know so much about them. I even know where they come from. So we also need skills for being able to drop the whole project of knowing so much and open up to the process of change. And opening to the process of change is completely dependent on your intention. So your intention actually changes what you notice. Mark Twain says, if a pickpocket walks down the street 
All he sees are pockets. And so to start to be aware of your toolbox of perspectives, of all the different pairs of glasses we wear. So mindfulness practice is paying attention to the quality of our noticing. It's not just that we're looking at something. It's that we're noticing the way that we're looking at something. And so in a way, we're asking you in that moment to drop your education and your gender and your title to forget about the calendar about the hour and about your name and whether you can add or subtract and to just arrive in an experience where you're just tuning into process. Not content. And most of us are therapists with ourselves most of the time. So you know this from sitting the past day. That something arises and usually we go for meaning. What does this mean? And then we get a really good story going about the significance of this. And that's why I was suggesting yesterday... And I think it was a good example uh, bringing up tiredness. The way where a state of mind or a mood can show up and we turn it into an object and then we fortify it with the experience of being subject. So you can't have one without the other. And then we think we know it. And then it actually hangs around. Because then we're in a whole dialogue with the meaning of our tiredness. And then I say, I am tired. But that's not actually what was happening. Tiredness is arising. And so we're noticing that. Identification with tiredness is arising. We're noticing that. And and with a different kind of intention... Accepting tiredness. This is what's here. Come back to the breath. Breathing with tiredness. And some of you may have more significant symptoms that arise. Maybe there's a certain illness you're working with, or maybe there's a certain... uh, state of mind that's been dominating for a while or a mood and probably if it's something that's been chronic you have a lot of stories about it and it has a kind of meaning for you and what I'm suggesting is to drop underneath the meaning to find that place in you that's much deeper than your opinions 
so that you're not just drifting through concepts, and instead you're making contact with the process of what's occurring here, right now. And the paradox is that there's meaning in it. It's meaningful. But it doesn't have meaning. Does that make sense to you? Joseph Campbell says, we're not looking for the meaning of life. We're looking for a deep experience of it. Whenever you look for the meaning of something, the significance of something, you're always going to end up with a story. It's going to have meaning or it's not going to have meaning. And when you create a story, you've put the experience in a narrative. And then we think the narrative is my life. And what we're suggesting is that's not your life. That's your story of your life. And it's so convenient to have one. But we're dropping underneath that when we're sitting So what did you notice in that meditation session? What did you notice? Well, to me, because of the change of posture with sitting like this, um, I noticed uh, a lot of ease from here up. Uh-huh. A lot of ease. Mm-hmm. My foot, my leg went to, my foot went to sleep, my leg went to sleep, mm-hmm. and I felt kind of anxious because I Oh my gosh, that's going to happen now. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And then it went away, so I stopped reading. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, because I'm so focused on the posture, I noticed it was hard to focus on the breath. So then I, after a while, I got back to the breath. The, the posture was so, like, front and center. Yeah. A weird thing happens to me when I'm really in the breath and I'm really doing that, right? And it's only, then there's always this thought like, this is really good, but is this it? (laughs) You know? And when the thoughts stop, because at some point, the thoughts do stop a bit. They don't Mm -hmm. come as often. And it's a really nice feeling. But then there's this thing that says, okay, so where's, you know when you talk about the meaning underneath? I can't get there. It's just that breath happening. Yeah. It's great, it's mm-hmm. pleasant, it's kind of nice to be very still. Yeah. I'm not suggesting that there's meaning underneath that. Yeah. I'm suggesting that when we move through the day, staying at this level of openness, it's meaningful. Our, our, we're touched yeah. by the quality of the snow. You walk around and you see birds because you don't have names for them. And you hear the sound of birds because you're not walking around (laughs) naming everything. Dogen says, when you go into the world and you confirm the world with your names for things, That is delusion. 
And when you go into the world and you become the world, there are no names and then you are confirmed by the world. And you all know this experience. You walk down one of the streets in this beautiful neighborhood and you see how much snow can pile up on one branch. There's a, there's a house on uh, Bernard that has a lot of dogwoods in the front yard. And it's amazing. There's like six inches of snow on one of those little stems. But when the mind comes in and you're caught up or hemmed in by all of your thoughts for the day, then it prevents contact with what's actually occurring. I say I'm depressed and I wake up in the morning and I diagnose myself and then I'm going to be depressed. But is that what's actually happening in that moment? Or am I just in a conceptual relationship with what's actually occurring? It's not to deny that maybe there's some diagnosis that's helpful. But I want you to start to penetrate in your meditation practice the nature of change the process that's happening, not just the content and your ideas about what's happening and what a great meditator you are or aren't. Somebody else? When I was meditating, it was almost that. For the first little while, it's always hard with the breath, and it's sort of all over the place, but slightly. And then at some point, I just, I just noticed that the breath was just that. I felt my admin sort of just, almost like a little baby's, mm-hmm. you know, how it was up and down, and just sort of the breath was just moving with it, but I sort of wasn't a part of it, mm-hmm. which, you know, for a split second, then I'm like, oh, what's this? Like you were just saying, and then, and then it sort of was gone again. Mm-hmm. And then there was more attention behind it, and it sort yeah. of changed and yeah. flowed differently and stuff yeah. like that. So that was sort of, yeah. I notice that every once in a while. Yeah. So I don't know if that's uh-huh. where I should go to, or just it's mm-hmm. whatever is happening. It's interesting, you know. I I was working with somebody a couple of years ago, and um, who. <coughs> Who, who went through a very bad accident and her body was really in pain. And um, one day we were sitting and practicing and one of the things that was very hard for her because of certain surgery that she had been through was to just have ease in her breathing. You know, just have ease in her breathing. And um, one day we were really focusing on just softening the breath so much that you can notice that the body breathes without you. The body just breathes. And she had this experience of just the body breathing. And it lasted for a couple of minutes. 
And then um, she had lots of tears with that experience. And she said, um, oh, I can trust this. I can trust this. And it was a profound experience for her because she was in an accident where something happened to her that she could never have seen coming. And there was a way that that created in her daily life a kind of distrust about and fear. But it got interiorized. So there was also a kind of distrust of the body. And spending a lot of time going through um, hospitals, hospital visits, she started to rely so much on what the doctors had to say about her experience that she kind of lost contact with knowing her experience from the inside out. It was always, you know, other people's diagnosis about what was happening. And in this experience, it was so healing for her that you can trust the body. Trust that the body is going to do the breathing. And like I said yesterday, as soon as I say notice your breath, do you trust that the body is going to breathe? Or do you go in there and work on the inhale a little bit? Just to watch that. It's so subtle. So what I'd like to do is just read this Wendell Berry quote one more time, and then we'll have a little break. Once we have reached the desired end, we think, we will turn back to purify and consecrate the means. Once the war we're fighting for peace is won, then the generals will become saints, the burned children will proclaim in the heaven that their suffering is well repaid, the poisoned forests will turn green again. Once we have peace, we say, or abundance, or justice, or truth, or comfort, everything will be right. Well, it's an old dream. It's a vicious illusion. For the discipline of ends is no discipline at all. The end is preserved in the means. A desirable end may forever perish in the wrong means. Hope lives in the means, not in the end. Art does not survive in its revelations, or agriculture in its products, or craftsmanship in its artifacts, or civilization in its monuments, or faith in its relics. So in this moment, this moment, there's aliveness here. Do you think that there's something else? (laughs) The next moment could not be more invisible. Are you looking around for something? With what are you most intimate? To look into that, with what are you most intimate? Do you spend most of your time committed to the end, the result? Is that what you're most intimate with? Dogen seems to say, and so does Wendell Berry, that 
maybe there's no way you can actually be intimate with the end. Maybe that's not really a valid form of intimacy. And in this moment, our philosophy is a relic. Everything you know is a relic. So the resolution to our conflict is in this moment. It can't be anywhere else. This moment contains the resolution of your conflict. It's not outside somewhere. And then compassion arises. Then tenderness arises. Then intimacy arises. Because you're not projecting somewhere outside of this experience, hoping that the end, wherever that's going to come from, is going to satisfy any anguish or separation you're feeling. With what are you most intimate? So let's have a break for 15 minutes, and we'll continue again at 11 o'clock.